The blueberry industry is like no other. Passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the production, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Well, welcome back to another episode of the Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Our virtual conference and expo is happening next week. If you haven't attended our fall meetings before, this is a great chance to join leaders from around the industry, right from the comfort of your home or your office or your home office. That's happening September 28th through October 1st. Registration is completely free thanks to our sponsors. We just ask that you head over to blueberryevents.org to register today. I'm so excited about that. Excited to see over 700 people that have registered today. And we expect that probably to continue to grow with this week to come. But one of those leaders that will certainly be present next week is our guest on today's show, Mr. Denny Doyle. Denny is a blueberry grower in New Lisbon, New Jersey, and the president of the New Jersey Blueberry Industry Advisory Council. He has been a leader with the USHBC since its inception and currently serves as the chairman of our Good Practices Committee. Denny, welcome to the show. Hello, Case. How are you? Hey. I hope everything's fine in California. Well, it's uh, it's a bit smoky still, but we're getting over a lot of that. Starting to see blue skies, but uh, I know you guys on the East Coast there facing some of that typical uh, you know, late summer, early fall season weather, so we're watching you guys too. Yes, we are. And we did see some of your smoke too. So, yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> um, interesting. 3,200 miles or whatever. So. Yeah, that's incredible. It something. It's great to have you on the show. I remember just over a year ago now, one of the first introductions I had to the blueberry industry was to meet Mr. Denny Doyle right away. And you've been a longtime leader and advocate and kind of a force within this business that it's just great to be able to kind of spend some time here to discuss a blueberry history lesson from our friend Denny Doyle, who I think will share some things about this business that you may not know about that will be uh, worth sticking around for. But I thought a good place to start would be what's happening with your committee. You know, we're getting geared up for our meetings next week. And I thought you might be able to talk a little bit about what's happening with the Good Practices Committee or, and maybe even talk a little bit about what got it going. But, you know, as we look at what we've gone through together this year, we've been dealing with quite a few issues. And that's really kind of the hallmark of your committee work. So I thought we'd just start with an overview from the chairman. Well, interesting. You know, our title is Good Practices Committee, but in fact, it really started out as a need or we had anticipated a need for crisis management. You know, as our industry continues to grow along that growth, there are great things that happen and there are possibilities of some not great things that possibly could happen. And we saw a need to be prepared and to bring professional people in to guide us through any of these crisis management problems that may arise. And as it turned out, it was just a fantastic move. We're real excited about having Dan on board now that you brought on. And it's a whole professional world that as your industry grows, there are needs for this expert advice. So that's how it started. And we kind of do a side bar, which has gotten to be a lot more important on the food safety aspect of our industry. And as 
most people know, and if they don't, you know, the food safety segment of our industry has certainly grown and expanded. So we're primarily about being prepared for crisis management and also to educate when we can growers about the importance of food safety. And they're the two primary goals. And out of our committee also came the technology committee because that was under my umbrella as chairman and we spun that off. I'm real excited about that and Rod Cook and and the great work he's going to do. Absolutely. And and we've been fortunate to, you know, in fact, share a lot of our new podcast with that committee's effort to get the innovation and tech out there in a new way. Obviously, the podcast has been a great platform in light of the global pandemic, but you couldn't be more right as I looked at what the industry has as both opportunity and challenges, the good practices committee and that ability to be prepared for not just the coaching of the food safety. Obviously, that has been a piece that we played a part in this year. And and then, of course, crisis communications, issues management that this industry has. We've seen just in this year, right, Denny? I mean, just how much being prepared matters. Yeah, it's just so important. And it was born not out of a crisis or any kind of a management issue. It's kind of how we work in our blueberry industry when we're able to get together and sit down and talk about different things. And as we did that, that's how this committee got to be named and formed. We didn't have to look back and say, boy, I wish we did have. We were just through conversations, and and that's just so important that our industry stays in that communication wave to talk about different things that may or may not come up. And we've been very, very fortunate. We have a good group of people that do that. Absolutely. I know I speak for the time I've had to get to know you and and certainly the reputation that precedes you in all those states that you're calling on, but all the work you do for the industry and the committee, but in other areas as well, including giving grower season updates on our crop report. So speaking of which, we should probably take a quick break for this week's report. There's a chance to hear what's happening in the industry directly from those in the field, And there's always information to be shared on these calls and plenty of personality, like Mr. Doyle's, to go with it. So here once again is your Blueberry Crop Report. It's time now for your Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from those in the field. As harvest winds down in many areas, today you'll hear from two growers, Mark Hurst in Oregon and Brian Sakuma in Washington. This was recorded on September 23rd, 2020. This is Mark Hurst from Oregon. It's been a crazy couple weeks here in Oregon. We've had a lot of smoke uh, that finally blew out last Friday, and it kind of delayed harvest in some cases, and some some product that was destined for fresh had to go process. This, the We're in our last variety, Aurora, and for all intents and purposes, the fresh deal is, is done. So uh, most growers are reporting their crop being a little lighter than last year, but we don't. I'm not sure of the total number yet. Brian Sakuma from Washington. We're essentially done with the, the main part of the season. There's a few last call in Aurora being picked probably for the last time. They'll probably be a little bit picked uh, next week, and I believe it should be a wrap after that. We are, as Mark had indicated, 
the smoke has cleared. We're getting a little bit of weather uh, hitting us for the next couple of days. So even though there may be some fruit on the vine, this weather could actually finish us off and on the west side of the mountains. I think there's a few organics being picked on the east side, but they're essentially done as well. It's difficult to say kind of where the the, the final production will be at this juncture. Brian, I got a I've got a question for you. How do you think your crop is compared to last year with your established fields? I think the established fields are a little bit lighter, and that's probably been offset with some of the younger fields that are coming into production. Yeah, I would say that's probably the same here in Oregon. Was there, do you think the percentage towards fresh was higher than last year, or was it about the same? I think it was about the same. I, I, I think that Maybe early on, there might have been a little bit more, and then due to a lot of different factors, maybe a little bit less towards the, towards the end. So, Mark, what is your take on percentages of fresh in Oregon? It seemed like, you know, the early season, uh, there was a higher percentage going fresh than we would normally see in the Duke variety. And there was good demand all the way through. So I'd be surprised if we weren't up on fresh compared to last year even though the crop is probably a little lighter, I would I would expect the fresh number to be a little higher than last year. Well, thanks again to our growers that show up, even in the harvest, to provide this information each and every week. We record these crop reports right before the podcast is released to give you the most up-to-date information possible. Once again, Denny Doyle is here with me in the show today. And Denny, let's maybe jump back into this conversation. You being from New Jersey, New Jersey having such an important place in the history of this business that we're in, I thought maybe we could just have you give us a little bit of insights on where this business has come from, you know, there at the heart of New Jersey. Well, yes, we are rich in history here in this state. We're very fortunate. There was a lady, Elizabeth White, back at the turn of the century, starting about 1906, 1907. She had a real, real interest in blueberries. Now, it has to be remembered that when I talk about those blueberries, these are the wild high bush, there's a major distinction between the wild up north of us in Maine and Canada. We have naturally growing here wild high bush. These bushes will get seven, eight, nine feet tall, but they're more in the swamp fringe areas that grow naturally. Actually, it was the American Indian that would cruise our areas and look for these patches of this wild high bush blueberry. And, you know, sometime when we have time, we really should look into what those American Indians were doing with these blueberries and the utilization of what the American Indian did. You know, that's probably for another time. But it was Elizabeth White. Her family was huge in the cranberry business. And she started this little sideline on blueberries. And she just had that great interest. Now, it has to be remembered from our audience that, you know, we're talking 1906, 1907, and a lot of times women didn't afford the respect that we do, obviously, in 2020. And her family, especially her father, was not that happy about her spending quite a bit of time developing this blueberry. But she was tenacious. She was a tough gal. And she stayed with it. So what she would do during the summer, 
she would send her workers out in the woods where these high bush hatches were, and these people were particular men. They knew the area. They were hunters. They were gatherers. You know, they sold the wood. So they really, really knew this area. So they would go out in the woods, and Elizabeth White gave them a board with holes in it, and they would pick the blueberries out in the swamp areas, and what she was looking for was a large berry, because a lot of these berries on the high bush side were quite small. But when they found several blueberries that would not fall through the holes of this board that she had, they were to tag that bush and report back to Elizabeth White, where is this bush? And it was pretty amazing. Right on my farm, there was one or two cultivars that were named because of the size of the berry. So what she would do then, once she knew where these bushes were, and they would tag them and put ribbons on them and mark them, they would come back in the fall, well, actually it was in the winter, and take cuttings off of them. And she then would propagate them. And she connected with Coval, who was up in Massachusetts, who was a botanist, and the communications between those two and how to really enhance and pick the best varieties. It was a team between Elizabeth White and Coble. He worked with the USDA. And that was the development of our industry. One of the first varieties was called a ruble. And technically, even to this day, it's still a high bush, wild, commercial, cultivated blueberry if that kind of makes any sense. Now, this takes time. We're not growing corn here. You know, corn jumps up, as most people would know, in one season. Now, this takes time. So she had all these cuttings, and it takes three or four or five years for this to actually grow up to a two- or three-foot bush to where you can kind of start saying, hey, I like this or I don't like that. So it was all through those years that, she worked hard at finding a high bush blueberry that produced the largest blueberry that was available out in the wild. And then from there, the business started to grow. J.J. White, which is where her family was, was still dubbed the grower number one in the True Blue Co-op, which was established the first blueberry marketing co-op, March 22nd, 1927. Wow. And I'll let you jump in here now. Well, I was just going to ask, I mean, if she were here, if Elizabeth White were here today, do you think she had the vision for what we're seeing happen right now? I mean, do you think even we passed the 1 billion mark in pounds, do you think she had a vision for something this size? Not for this size, but, you know, I, you know, you paused here. Yeah. Yeah. You had me paused. I mean, look at the vision that she had from ground zero, Casey. I mean, there were no cultivated blueberries out on the market. Zero, none. The only blueberries even consumed in a very, very small way were some of the local people that might go out and pick a few blueberries, you know. Um, So to answer your question, as progressive as she was, would it kind of surprise her of the numbers of pounds, a billion pounds? Sure. 
I think she would just smile and nod her head and go, yeah, I knew this. She certainly wouldn't get into all, I don't think, the complexities of the overseas production and that type of thing. But but I think would she it knew. Absolutely, floor no. Yeah, well, I mean, I no. guess I was just going to say. I mean, part of what wouldn't floor is that she knew she had something. She could taste it. She could see it. She knew that people didn't know about it. I think I asked the question because I, I, you know, I don't know that a lot of people imagined this industry would grow as quickly as it has to the size that it's become, and yet, from its inception, that vision that this was a fruit, this was a you know something that she wanted to share in ways that you had to cultivate it, you had to put the time in, you had to get it perfected to that place of being able to ship it or share it. And that if you could share this with more people, how many more people would want to consume this? And I guess, you know, that kind of brings me to your sense of how the industry's evolved since then, because you started your farm. Uh, 1936, we were grower 69. And by these numbers, it starts with one and then the True Blue Co-op at the end had 386 growers, I believe it was. And we represented Michigan and North Carolina. So at one time, True Blue was the ocean spray of blueberries. They controlled mostly all the sales. But it's just so interesting because now as we're rolling forward on the time, we're into the 30s and 40s, Michigan started really getting a hold of this and hearing of this information and thinking there was something there, North Carolina also. So basically, up until kind of the 70s, it was really a three-state business. This is kind of important. It was in 1965 that the NABC was developed, right? And those founding fathers got together and said, hey, you know, our industry is growing. Now, Michigan is growing. North Carolina is growing. New Jersey was growing. We need to get together to promote this business. So it's kind of interesting from like 1925 all the way to, let's say, 1970, there was a moderate growth. I won't call it slow. You know, we'll call it moderate. Now with the NABC and doing the promotion and we were outreaching. We were going into Chicago now. We were going to Minneapolis. We were trying to get into California, Casey, but they wouldn't let us in. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, they wouldn't. <laughs> they just wouldn't. They just said, no, there's enough fruits and vegetables here and keep your blueberries out of here. There wasn't a blueberry not even sold in California in 1972, 1973. So <laughs> that's true. So That's remarkable. Uh, and also Oregon blocked us out. They're part of the sister states out there that nobody comes in. Every Everything that you guys grow out there comes out, but we can't go in. But anyway, so through the development of NABC, our industry really started to expand. There was more awareness, not only to consumers, but there were also awareness to other growing regions. All right. So now you start with the different growing regions and our promotion started getting more and more. You know, I was part of this crew, you know, the outreach, go out to different growing states and new states and say, hey, you really should think about joining us. And so we can well, continue our promotion. Let me let me jump in there. I mean, it wasn't that you went out to other states, Denny. I mean, the inception of NABC in the industry, kind of as you described the history of it, of the North wild. Obviously, you've got this BC 
Canadian influence in the high bush on the West Coast, but it wasn't just a state conversation. You guys were already talking internationally and building networks of international business relationships, which is part of why it was North American versus anything else you could have done. exactly right. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. What was happening then that had you cross borders to build those relationships? That process actually came from the wild industry, the low bush industry. That was an industry that was going on, but primarily all in the frozen market. That industry was growing as we were growing. And we joined together. They joined with us. We joined with them, however you want to put that. But at that time, in the 70s and 80s, the wild industry, i.e. low bush cultivated blueberries and the high bush, were joined at the hip. The two industries would go to the meetings and discuss. It was the low bush industry wanted us really, really just to stay concentrated just on fresh, not on frozen at all. And that worked very well for years, but it got to be a time in the 80s that our frozen inventory was rising and we felt pretty well handcuffed that we couldn't go out and promote frozen. And that's when the split up took place. We went on our own and of course, and then they went on theirs. I'm quite sure that we never looked back, Casey. We never looked back. And it's important for our industry, for the younger growers and people coming into our industry to know that I know we're facing problems today and we'll continue to face these problems. But the important part of this is we had problems back then too. We had issues back then. I mean, there were many times a lot of us walk out of a meeting and go, oh my goodness, you know, how are we going to handle this? This isn't going to be good. But again, through the communication, through working with each other, we came up with the solutions and move forward. Well, and again, I just want to thank you for sitting down with me. It's an exciting week ahead. Oh, anytime. Uh, and, anytime. And yet, yeah. you know, I think you and I could probably continue this conversation with what we both agree is a number of ways and opportunities and continue to cast that vision that's yet ahead for the business of blueberries. So I really appreciate you joining yeah. us today, Denny. Oh, man, it, it was a pleasure. It was really good. Well, that was a treat being able to take some time with Denny. He's just always so good to talk to about all those things that really set the stage for this experience we're having in this business of blueberries, starting with Elizabeth White domesticating the wild highbush blueberry, leading to the development of the True Blue Co-op. So his farm being a part of that co-op originally. And then, you know, I just think the other part that stands out in a position that he's had over all these years, just looking at what needed to happen next and next. And obviously now he chairs the Good Practices Committee and that proactive effort at that time has just continued to protect and pay dividends for this industry all these many years later. So that's it for episode 15. If you found this insightful, please share this link with a friend or another colleague in the blueberry business. Heck, even if they're not in the blueberry business, uh, this was a great show. And so please help spread the word of this show. And thanks so much for listening. Really, it's been a lot of fun and, and we're having a good time with it. And we really appreciate your feedback. So continue to send us your thoughts, ideas, and suggestions for future shows. But we'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries. <laughs>